Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. And joining me today is Reggie Hubbard, who is a strategist, congressional liaison, uh, and yoga teacher. Reggie has held many senior strategic and logistical roles across a variety of fields, ranging from global marketing, digital and community organization, government relations, international education, to presidential campaigning. He currently serves as a senior political strategist for Move On, managing their relationships, impact, and communications with Capitol Hill and among the broader progressive movement. So he's done a a number of things. Um, We're not necessarily going to talk about yoga today, but we are going to dive into understanding activism. Reggie had done some really incredible things. He was the the ground logistics coordinator for John Kerry's 2004 campaign, and then the vice presidential candidate, Senator John Edwards, uh, visiting four to five states a day over a six-month period. Um, He was also the freelance advice uh, advance consultant for Barack Obama and Joe Biden. Uh, And he worked on the gubernatorial, that's a word there for you, gubernatorial, uh, and national campaigns, including Florida's 2006 uh, gubernatorial race and on Bernie Sanders' 2016 primary campaign. So he has been in the political field for a while. And today we're going to talk primarily about uh, the the modern activism movement. We're going to talk a little bit about Black Lives Matters. Uh, and we're going to talk about how some of these movements um, are are sort of running rogue. We're going to talk about the importance of activism. Uh, we are going to talk about the organizations themselves. So it's a very interesting conversation and one that I've been wanting to dig into for a while. And uh, Reggie has a lot of experience, you know, almost two decades worth of experience in this space, kind of being a bridge between activists and the political parties. So he's got a very unique vantage point and view when it comes to understanding both sides of the spectrum uh, and understanding how these conversations can sometimes fall apart and how we can progress them forward. So this is going to be a very high-level look and in-depth in some ways. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. So without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Reggie Hubbard. Good to be here, Connor. Happy to see you. Yeah, man. Yeah, I think this is going to be a, a fun conversation. We're just jamming a little bit beforehand, and I feel like we have some good stuff to dig into. So, um, so before we get into sort of the 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 heart of it, I have to ask you the question, which is: tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah, I appreciate the question. I actually, um, one of the things I love to do is I love. I'm a, I'm a recovering civics teacher, and I say recovering because I used to teach. My friends used to call me the teen whisperer. <laughs> because, you know, from age 14 to 17, like I was the dude, I was the cool teacher. And everyone would be like, Mr. Hopper is like, I'm Reggie. Like, you know, don't call me Mr. Unless you did something wrong. You know what I mean? Like, you know, Reggie, we're cool. So anyway, when I was four, and I think that's because I just, I've been radically authentic since I was 14. So when I was 14 years old, I grew up in Severn, Maryland, which is right between Baltimore and DC. And I didn't know how racist it was until I was older. And here's what I mean by that. Like in ninth grade, my guidance counselor invited me to, every guidance counselor wants to talk to their their, their students, right? And my guidance counselor asked me the following question, where do you want to go to college? Innocuous question. I replied, I wanted to go to Georgetown um, or Princeton because I'm a huge basketball fan. That year, um, Princeton almost beat Georgetown in the NCAAs, and why not? So, Connor, her response was, if you get into college, um, it will be a community college, because statistically speaking, that's hard for you. And look, I had a 3.7 out of 4.0. You know what I mean? I was class secretary, and so I I knew what that was. And so at 14 years old, I calmly asked, so I, I was like, ma'am, you asked me a question. I have a question for you. And she's like, what? I'm like, how do I get a new counselor? And she's like, er. I was like, I clearly have dreams. You have no interest in helping me fulfill. So why are we talking anymore? Mm. You know, I need a new counselor. Mm. And so at 14 years old, and this is what I said to the kids I taught earlier this week, I was like, you know who you are. You know what you want. We just don't necessarily always have the confidence and courage to pursue it. So I'd love to meet 14-year-old me because what 14-year-old looks someone who's in their 40s or 50s in the face and says, hey, I need a new counselor. You ain't, you're not here to help me out. So I, we got to change this. So mm. 
to be so rooted and grounded at such a young age, I think is part and that's why I'm, I was, have been successful in business. That's why I've been successful in politics. It's just like, yo, if it's not working, I can look you in the face and be like, Hey, this has got to change. It's mm. good, man. It's good. I, I appreciate the story. And I think it gives some context to what we're going to talk about because I, you know, I haven't in the last couple of months gone too deep into the, you know, into the political environment and the sphere that is happening right now, the current culture and, and climate. I've touched on it a little bit in, in just sort of talking about it, but not necessarily dug into it. And one of the reasons why I had you on the show and was to kind of go a little bit deeper into this. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you, if you can just in your own words, you know, I like, I read off your, your bio for the people, so they kind of got a sense, but I would like for you, if you can, because you're a man of many talents like myself. And so I would love yeah. for you to just uh, summarize a little bit about what it is that you do, what you're devoted to, what you're committed to, and and then we can go from there. Yeah, so I wear many hats, the least of which is this stylish kangle. Um, I, my day job is I work for moveon.org, so leading progressive uh, organization. I'm one of their senior political strategists and their wisdom keeper relationship holder on Capitol Hill. So was super involved in the impeachment process, hold relationships with the Speaker of the House on down uh, the Democratic caucus through regular grassroots folks, because my job is to relay the concerns of our millions of members to the uh, to the Congress. So sometimes that means being friendly. Sometimes that means being confrontational, like I shared with you in that earlier story. It's be like, look, that's your opinion. That's my opinion. We have to agree to disagree. And or how do we find compromise? So I've been doing that for about three years. I've been in the broader political world since 2004, where I worked on the John Kerry campaign. So I've been in like high level politics since 2004. Prior to that, I was in global marketing. So I've always and people are like, how is that congruous so well? Politics is marketing. If you re- if you really want to be honest about it, it's sales and marketing. So like for me, it was a natural mental shift. And I've been trying to convince people of the same thing. Like if you've got a good message and sell the product, you get the currency, which is the vote. So that's one thing that I do. My passion, I would say, because politics I'm passionate about, but not as much as I am about wellness. So I'm also a 500-hour certified yoga and meditation teacher and like have been, you know, kind of life is wild. So like if you had told me that, so I've been practicing for about six years actively, so not like once a week. So I have a daily practice and that's been like beneficial for everything that I do in my life. But if you had told me that I would be teaching members of Congress or like teaching the DNC or I taught a a Prince themed yoga class to the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee a couple weeks ago. So like the political establishment is getting like a yoga class with like (laughs) Prince music on a Wednesday afternoon. Right. So like if you had told me that that was possible, I would have laughed. Number one, but me, a yoga teacher, get out of here. Who does that? But so equal parts activists, but more passionate about wellness and finding center, whether it be in the political sphere, but most importantly, in our hearts and minds, because we like operating from anger is pretty destructive. And yeah. so it, it's not a winning proposition. Yeah, I mean, I, I just got a, a an image. <laughs> I was like, maybe you should do like a, a cross party uh, yoga event where I could just see like Mitch McConnell next to Nancy Pelosi <laughs> fucking downward talk. <laughs> Right. Oh my God, be amazing. Yeah. The speak the speaker would be down for it, like Mr. McConnell. I don't know, but any look, anything's possible. Bro. Right, right, right. I'm just, I'm just getting a kick out of it. Sometimes we're gonna laugh about this shit, right? Yeah, so, for sure, absolutely. So tell me, like, a little bit just before we we go into it uh, about Move On. What, what? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that and uh, what that's all about. Yeah, Move On's been around since 1999, I think, or 98. So um, progressive issue advocacy organization, normally known for rapid response. So, for instance, I, the best example I can use is when um, in 2018, when Donald Trump, it, when it came out that the president was um, jailing children and separating them from their families. In a week's time, we put together 850 national protests um, with over 750,000 people in the streets being like, hey, look, this is unacceptable. And so it's that logistical expertise. And my job in that moment was to basically produce the marquee protests in Washington, D.C. So we had 50,000 people. 
Um, uh, this is probably one of the highlights of my activist career. I got to lead a march of 20,000 people down Pennsylvania Avenue with prayer beads on, like fist in the air, talking about we're not going to take this anymore, right? So mm. we're known for being in the streets, pushing for progressive advocacy in everything, and, you know, so so super involved with everything that's happening with the passing of uh, Justice Ginsburg now in, in, the, in this present moment. And um, I've been there for about three years, and I'm responsible for relationships on the Hill. Mm. So anything that happens in Washington, D.C., as it pertains to the Senate, the House, and whatever limited engagement we have with the, with the administration, that, that's my bailiwick. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Like, I, I do want to, you know, we're, we're going to eventually land on, on how to sort of have political peace, and, and yeah. we might, we'll, we'll get to that later. But I think we should talk about the non-peaceful parts of it because you know that, <laughs> that's sure. sort of important to talk about first yeah. uh so let's talk about let's talk about the problems <laughs> of which yeah, there are plenty totally. um oh, man. but you know i think right now again as, as as i was saying to you on offline before we got on being a canadian and watching what's happening here even though you know canada has its own political issues it has its own racial yeah. issues you know there's there's lots there's lots in canada that that we could deal with but it doesn't seem to be as nearly as volatile and being a Canadian that's moved down into the States and sort of being immersed in this culture and in this climate and sort of seeing the political unrest and the racial unrest and the inequalities and just how vicious it is here in this country. I'm curious to get your perspective as somebody that's been in it, that's you know sort of been fighting for change. Why activism? Like why activism specifically as a, as a tool and a means to to creating change? What about that for you? Do you feel creates progress and and allows people to have a voice? Because I think what I've started to see in America is that there is there's like activism and now there's like counter activism. You know yeah, that sure. seems to be really getting a lot of momentum. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Is like as activism grows. And there's many different parts of this that I want to dig into, but I just want to start with the basic foundation of like why activism, what is it, how do you define it, and we'll maybe we'll just go from there. Yeah, so you know, no system of government is perfect, right? However, our system, the American, the pardon me, the United States. I hate that. <laughs> like you know, Canada's America, Mexico's America. I lived in Brazil for a bit. That's America. So the United States system of government is not perfect. Hmm. And the way the imperfect, this imperfect system of government is set up is through active citizen participation. So it, in order for it to be a functioning, thriving, healthy system of governance, it requires citizen engagement. So it, it requires like basic ac activism from all people. Over the past generation or so, the level of citizen engagement has waned and more of a corporatocracy has been, mm. been installed. And so what we're seeing now, I think, is the generational revulsion of what has manifested in the uh, corporatocracy as it's set in. But, you know, because even two years ago, they cut this huge, they, they, they passed this huge tax break just for them. And no one has really seen any derivative benefit, right? You have the stock markets, uh, but who owns stocks, right? You know, I mean, some people do, but not a lot of people do. So, um, can you, uh, for me, can, can, mm -hmm. sorry, sorry to interrupt. Can you just define corporatocracy for people? Because I think I, I think I know what you're talking about, and I have a reference for it. But I just want to make sure that like everybody's on the same page. Oh, no, for sure, um, for sure. Because I, I agree. I think, I think it was Noam Chomsky who was talking recently about how the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have both become sort of figureheads for companies for corporations rather than right. for the people and there's this right. big resurgence of activism to try and reclaim some of that power so yep. if you can just define that and then we'll keep going yeah so i think that so kind of thanks thanks for the pause i think the simplest definition of corporatocracy is the in inclination of a government to serve the interests of business more so than regular people. Mm. And that's particularly heartening or disheartening to me because I worked in Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2015 and 2016 and in his office and for, for his office in 2017. So like my inclination has been to not only inspire but empower regular people who have been manipulated by health insurance companies, who have been manipulated by fossil fuel companies, who have been manipulated by all these companies into habits and or exploited by government policies that benefit the company's success, not the success of regular people. You know, perfect example. 
We have a raging pandemic everywhere, but more so in the United States because of the ineffectual governance of, of, of the, of the um, administration. And health insurance companies are seeking, or the Republican Party is seeking to take away health care. Why? Why? You know, it's clearly not in the interest of the people. And I'm not saying that health insurance companies are seeking to strip health care because it's in their best interest that everyone has health care. But the donors to the Republican Party are mostly corporations. So that one party, more so than any, yes, the Democratic Party has its faults as well, um, which is that I'm a registered independent. But like the Republican Party is so beholden to corporate interests that it will not see the will of the people. And so I think that people... And as evidenced by Move On and other groups, have had enough of that and are seeking to influence the government to get it more to a centrist orientation, so more people focused. So in the center between corporatocracy and anarchy is like, you know, people is people centered. Yeah. Right. So we're trying to get more people in, involved and served by the government as opposed to its current orientation. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm curious because you were you were talking about how like the the different political parties have sort of lost the interest of the people but yeah. i i know for not maybe not for a fact but i i know that if i was talking to people that are avid let's just say republican yeah. voters they would have a very different perspective right there'd be a discrepancy because they would they would largely they've largely believe that their party has their best interest in mind and so i'm curious right. about your perspective on on that, because I think there's a lot of people out there that are like, well, the Democratic Party is not about the people anymore. You know, it's not about the people's interests, but nor is the Republican Party. And I think at face value, the Republicans have done a. It, again, I'm I'm coming all this at the, all this from somebody that can't vote in America. So I'm just, <laughs> just being crystal clear. Yeah. I'm I'm like sitting on my lawn chair <laughs> yeah. on the sidelines watching. It's helpful, right? Different perspective, right? But I I think you know if I was talking to you know, a big Trump fan, they would they would probably say that 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 administration has the interest of the people in mind. And so I'm yeah. curious about what that discrepancy is from your perspective, from somebody that's in the activism community that, that sees this, yeah. talks to, to a lot of these people. Where is that discrepancy? Yeah, so for me, it's about values more so than anything. Right. So like what values in terms of policy implementation are represented by the, you know, actions speak louder than words. So like, what are your values? What have you done? If the Republican Party has sought to cut health care, they've sought to cut taxes. And in the context of our pandemic, they haven't they haven't come up with a plan. Those aren't values that I subscribe to. Yeah. Right. So, you know, you can believe the rhetoric or you can believe the actions. So at some point, there's a cognitive dissonance that arises. Like you, you say you're doing this, but you've been only doing this. So for me, when I talk to folks and, I, you know, one of the good things I say that I'm I'm actually blessed by my Republican friends because they've taught me how to have conversations with people that I don't agree with. Mm. Right. And so that's what I say to them. I'm like, listen, I hear your rhetoric. And from my open, compassionate heart, my question is, like, what's the disconnect? Because, like, the rhetoric says this, but the actions are this. So what is it? Mm -hmm. So regardless, the rhetoric, that's, that's cute. Those are talking points. But show me what you're talking about. Yeah. So I, I approach it from a values perspective. Yeah, because I think I, one of the shocking things is that that tax cut that you're talking about back in yep. 2018 has yep. made it possible for, I think it's the top 40 or the top 400. I can't recall exactly which one it was, but the top 40 individ wealthiest individuals or 400 wealthiest individuals in America since the beginning of the pandemic to have accrued a collective $564 billion dollars. Right. No. Which is just just crazy that town. small amount of people. And you're like, holy fuck, like that is insane. Yeah. You know, I look at that. Yeah. I look at that and I was like, <laughs> you know, where's the distribution of wealth within the right. country? And it seems to be getting skewed more and more into the into the yep. upper echelons. And yep. it's creating all sorts of systemic problems underneath. And so and I think even I think even conservatives can agree that that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I would I would I mean, I hope so. I, I think I think so. Um, so tell me a little bit about the the activism community, because I think right now mm -hmm. there's different kinds of activists, right? And I right. think what is being propagated through mainstream media, which is a whole other conversation that we could probably get into, but but what's being propagated through mainstream media is, you know, there are there are peaceful protesters and there are a ton of people out there trying to do good and trying to, you know, make a difference. But then there are also... Um, 
they're also not. They're also there's a lot of violence and, and that kind of stuff is happening. And so, mm-hmm. as somebody that's sort of boots on the ground, you know, yeah. amongst people, what are you seeing in the activism community, and where are where are some of this hostility coming from that is being obviously sort of focused on um, and and highlighted in mainstream media? Well, I mean, the job of mainstream media is to sell ratings, not necessarily to tell the truth, right? So let's just begin there. I feel like all, and, all uh, parties can can agree on that. That's like, <laughs> yeah, right, right. everybody's like, yep, right. yep, we're good. Right, right. You know, regardless of your affiliation, like they're, they're trying to get ratings. And, you know, I even say in the context of the presidential race, like whether it's a horse race or not, listen to the way they talk about it. Like they, they want it to be like, and then this, and then this, and then this to keep you hooked and keep you focused right so like that so for anyone just if you don't remember anything i tell you just uh, cultivate critical thinking and discernment mm. like learn to think for yourself i didn't say be cynical i said discernment those are two totally different things right so in terms of the activist community you know d- democracy is messy right you know and the constitution of the united states of america is designed to protect that messiness it's designed to protect freedom of speech. It's designed to like offer pr- protection for people who seek to petition the government for a redress of their grievances. That that's right out of the Constitution. So, mm-hmm. for the mainstream media to be like, "Oh, they're violent," well, riddle me this: if you were in a system that sought to like extinguish your existence and those of your ancestors for four hundred years, most recently made manifest in the murder of George Floyd and or the shooting of Jacob Blake in the back and the murder of Breonna Taylor and those sorts of things, and the system still didn't change, you wouldn't have a little bit of heat about that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you would just think, oh, everything's great. And so I encourage anyone who wants to view that with skepticism to, again, from a values-based argument, how, what if that was you? Like, what if that was you or your people? Right. And and when can we begin to look at racial things from a humanistic perspective as opposed to that's just them? So that's one thing I'll say. But in terms of the specifically answering your question, so the grassroots activists who, like myself, who seek to influence um, this um, policy making apparatus and the opinions of senators and those sorts of things, as well as those people who do that on a more local level. Right. They're, then there are folks who are getting into this for the first time who um, honestly may not know what they're doing, but that's okay too, because you know our system is designed for people to speak up and speak out. And if their voice is not heard through the government, that's what voting is for, right? You know, the, 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 the government is supposed to serve the interests of the people. And if you don't do your job, you're supposed to, you're supposed to be voted out. That, that's how this thing is supposed to work. So I think that the messiness of our current situation is just part of just the It's a sign of the times, but also it's supposed to be. Mm. And I'm okay with it because it's the job of people like me to channel that mess towards positive ends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting, what has been, at least for me, an interesting perspective or view during this whole thing is to see how mainstream media talks about the different opposing forces through all this, right? Like yeah. you have wow. you have peaceful protesters out in the streets. Some of them, you know, get some of them are, are not peaceful. They get they sort of get violent or they, you know, start riding or breaking things or stealing things and whatnot. And that becomes this huge tidal wave of everything that gets focused in on. But then you have a a, a militia, largely oh, white yeah, militia that yes. that that's that you know rolls up on on Michigan Congress, weapons threatens threatens the governor, <laughs> and and it's and it's largely not talked about, and that that's where I was like, well, hold hold on, yeah. like just a, welcome to racism, yeah, like again as like a third party person, I was like, <laughs> well, what, why is the, why is this not being talked about more? Like this that was a direct yeah. threat on government, right? A direct. Yeah threat on government with assault rifles with assault rifles with flak jackets yeah. like the whole thing there was hundreds of yeah. them ammo yeah, yeah. and so <laughs> yeah i was like what the hell and then yeah. you know i saw a recent video from the bbc that and they were in uh, uh louisville kentucky i think mm-hmm. and they were showing again very similar just like this huge militia of largely white white men and then there's like this arming militia of black men that are uh, sort of out there. And so there seems to be like this confrontation It's building in some states. And I know that that's not what you're about. I know that that's not, that's not what you're necessarily a part of, mm-hmm. but. But it's part of the ecosystem. It totally, it totally influences what I do. Yeah. yeah. And so like how, 
where, like, can you give us some thoughts on that? And like, maybe like why some of those pieces are, are happening, how people make sense of that? Because I think what's challenging right now is that because the political landscape and the, even the activist landscape is so sort of chaotic, I think people don't know what to believe. And they're hearing so many opposing narratives and stories. That it's, it's hard to make sense of anything. So can you give some context to like why some of there's offshoots of not activism necessarily, because I don't think that's correct, but there's these offshoots that are sort of brewing up. And then what is the main body really trying to achieve? Like what's the main body of, of activism in America trying to achieve from your perspective? Yeah, so the the groups that you refer to, Connor, so there has always been an undercurrent of, I wouldn't say that all the militias are white supremacists, but I will, I will say that they are interested in safeguarding the vestiges of white supremacy, right? So there is a group of people who don't want things to change at all. Right. It works for them or it works for them at bare minimum psychologically, even though it may not economically. Right. So and the other thing I would say is that there are there's a lot of fear right now. So there's um, the president is seeking to foment fear and use fear as a recruiting tool to maintain reelection. And in response to that fear, there are other people who seek to confront that fear and or with with respect to the incident that you talked about in Louisville. People, so Breonna Taylor was murdered by police and the police haven't been arrested, right? So like, you know, that has led to like a lingering pall over that, over that area. So for, if for people to show up who are white with guns, like, yeah, we're going to keep things the way they are. People who represent Breonna Taylor and other communities are like, oh, no, you're not. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I mean, I think in that specific instance, I'm not keen on that much violence. I'm not keen on brandishing weapons. You know, I'd rather us brandish our disagreements in a constructive circumstance. But that's just a manifestation of the way things are right now. You know what I mean? There's some people who want to keep the status quo. There are many of us who want to challenge the status quo. Um, if you feel threatened, it's I'm in, you know, in certain, you know, there is a constitutional amendment. The second one, this is right to bear arms. Like each of us have a different or, um, interpretation of that. But at bare minimum, if someone is like threatening you, you want to protect yourself. Mm. Right. So I think that with respect to the Louisville situation, if someone's coming at you with AR-15s, you're, you're just going to stand there like, okay, that's cool. You know what I mean? So probably not. Yeah. But writ large, I think that everything is up for discussion right now. Everything is um, topsy-turvy. And in that way, people cling to what makes them feel safe. For some people, that's a gun. You know, for me and yoga and meditation have been helpful for me with this. I'm actually quite comfortable when things are topsy-turvy because it means that things can change. And so my whole goal and what I do is to be a bit provocative and encourage people and systems to change towards a more evolutionary benefit as opposed to the status quo, which which really, quite honestly, is only working for those 40 people that you talked about or mm -hmm. 400 people that you talked about the benefit of the tax cut. The rest of us are middling or not. Yeah. Right. So we all need to be honest about that and step past the fear and look at who the system is benefiting. It's not us. It's not all of us. Yeah, and it does It does seem to be that there is a, a desire for forward momentum and progress, you know, from yeah. from most sides. I think, I Majority, think, for sure. you know, from almost know. all sides. Like, I, I'm, I haven't talked to many people that in America, uh, regardless of the political choice and heard, you know, things aren't great, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> where there, where there's a, like, yeah, shit's just working really well in this country and I'm, yeah. I'm so happy. Right. But, <laughs> but for the most part, for the most part, people are like, you know, things aren't working well, but right. how they're going about that perceived change, I Absolutely. think is, is different. Right. Because Absolutely. I, I think on, on some sides of the spectrum, on the extreme ends, segregation and displacement and derision is being used as a tool Absolutely. to try and create that change. And that's it's sure. very divisive, right? And I think yep. for the people that have watched The Social Dilemma, they'll, they'll have seen how integral social media is, is as a part of that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, social media can also be a beautiful tool, I'm sure, for, you know, activism and getting people together and having people come out and, uh, you know, and, and get together. That is a potent tool. That, that can get used. But you know, I think one of the other things that you were touching on there is the uh, just is this like predilection towards using 
force in America, you know, mm-hmm. force before mm-hmm. conversation. That that seems Absolutely. to be really Great. prominent, right? Like there's more there's more guns in America than there are people, right? There's more guns. Mm-hmm. There's 392 million guns in America, and in July in July alone, because I don't, I, I'm like a stats nerd sometimes, yeah, but in July alone there was something like 3.6 million guns sold in one fucking month. That's, that's right. So, so people are arming themselves. And that seems to be that that seems to be the, you know, the, the prominent way of dealing with things. So I like your approach because it's sort of going against the grain of what's normalized. Right. And so how yeah. we got to change it, man. It's not it's not to anyone's yeah. benefit. Like if, if, if you're constantly afraid, you're not going to change. You're just going to be like, ah, my, you know, like we got to open up. We got to figure this out because it's to all of our benefit to figure this out. Well, it seems like part of this is like the shadow of America, which is, you know, the trauma of the, the unhealed trauma of of slavery, Mm -hmm. you know, and the, and the treatment of black men and women in America that doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be getting reconciled with. And there, there's so many different perspectives on that, right? And so I'm, I'm curious right. for you, because I think in, in one of the articles that, that my producer sent me, you, you wrote in there, I'm the descendant of slaves who could not vote. I helped lead strategy and congressional outreach for a leading progressive organization. And so, you know, what, what is that like? What, what is it like to be a descendant in that position? And, and, and like, how do we reconcile with that? Because I know this is like a huge question that maybe is, doesn't have necessarily <laughs> like, well, yeah, actually, I have the answer written down on a piece of paper here for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's a yeah, big I attachment. I can't put it's it on the show. Right. Um, but like, <laughs> but like, where do we start? Right. Like, because I think part of this, right. part of this, um, infusing peace into the political system, which so desperately needs to happen. I mean, the the veins of the political system are running rampant with hatred and seem to be malnourished in, in, in peace and calm and collective unification. So where do we start with this big question of, of the trauma, you know, that has been, that has occurred in America? Yeah. So one thing, and I appreciate the question because like, I view this as my life, my life's work. What do I mean by that? So I taught another class recently um, where people were like, what do you say to people who say there's no hope? And I referenced what I just said. I was like, in the context of my lived experience, we've gone from not being able to vote to like me being on Capitol Hill with prayer beads talking about Congressman, how are you? Here's how I think you should consider this. That's four generations. It's really not that long of a time. So like being rooted in that history gives me optimism and it gives me the lens through which to offer other people what, what, what they should consider. And the only reason, Connor, that I've been able to do that is because I've healed my trauma, right? I've healed my anger. I've healed my ability and expanded my ability to view opinions that I don't necessarily agree with. But like hold them with the respect that's required. And by, and by required, I mean, I just have to listen. I don't have to agree, but I have to listen. You know, that's what that's what yoga and meditation have taught me is like, I don't have to agree with anything, but I just I should listen and then discern what I should keep. And then I'll, based on that discernment, move forward. So what does that mean in the broader context? You know, racism hasn't only just hurt black people like racism has hurt white people, too. But no one wants to talk about that. Right. You know, being caught up in anger and fear of another based on the color of their skin for hundreds of years, that's not good for anybody. You know, we have more in common than we do not in common. If the only thing we all breathe, you know, we have the same functioning digestive system, you know, the same circulatory system, like the processes that make these bodies run are unilaterally Mm. the same. The only difference is the expression of the color of the skin. And you want to demonize people based on that. That's crazy. And in order to perpetuate that for hundreds of years, you know, in, in yogic or Buddhist philosophy, that's called samskara, right? So like we have got hundreds of years of things that individually and collectively we have to have a reckoning for. And so the messiness of the current circumstance that we talked about earlier is because it has been stifled and suppressed for so long it it, it's, it it needs to be expressed. It needs to be released in order for us to like be fully healed as a society. These things have got to be talked about. And if they're not talked about, we'll continue to perpetuate that cycle of, of downward energy um, as opposed to letting the pain heal, letting oxygen or whatever metaphor you want to use, let the wound heal. 
And then as the wound heals, then we can move forward. So like in the context of my personal story, we as a family have shared our stories. We've shared our pain. And many of us, you know, my brother and I are on the front are the front lines of this. Like we use our pain and our success in navigating that pain to help other people heal as well. So I think that's a good paradigm for other people to consider, regardless of your of the color of your skin. Like, what pain has this this circumstance caused you? And I would urge people to consider that if it's hurt your neighbor, that it's also hurt you, right? Because we have to come to an understanding that we're all in this together, whether we like it or not, right? So that that's what I would offer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's, that's powerful stuff. I'm I'm curious, you know, for the the listeners that are out there who you know don't and i don't know how many of they these people would be tuning into my show but but for the listeners right. that are out there that are sort of like you know we've we've dealt with this we're like the america's passed this you know like we've we've mm-hmm. we've done the laws we've passed the legislation you know like there isn't that quote-unquote big of a problem because i think the mm-hmm. the thing is that there is a huge part of america that that feels that way right that right. that doesn't think that it's necessarily about black lives or police lives or anything like that, that, that this is a more, uh, this is a more power centric conversation, right. About people in the ruling class. And so I'm, I'm curious what you would say to people in those positions, people that have that opposing view, because I think for, for a large part of people, you know, they scroll through Facebook, they scroll through Instagram, they, you know, they have tons of friends and family that they're just like, I don't even know how to how to talk to them because our opinions and perspectives are so radically different that it feels like we're living in, in a different universe. So how do you start to engage with people that are that are that do vehemently oppose the things that you're saying? Like, how do you start to have a conversation yeah. with them? I think that's a valuable path to go down. Well, one thing I would say is that the laws have been passed, but they's all, they've also been rescinded, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right? So the laws were passed, and then like the power structure, to your, to somewhat to your point, um, extract like rolled them back, which is why I, I say citizen engagement and voting is important because there's always groups that want to take back progress that benefits all people, right? It's in, it's in the vested interest of the power structure to keep it as it is. So like if we shift it, um, they want to they want to take it back. So that's when I would say like the rules have been passed, but they've also been rescinded. And for people who think that everything's okay, I mean, look at the news, right? You know, why would cops in Kenosha, Wisconsin, shoot an unarmed man seven times in the back when you could have easily restrained him on the hood of his car? Why would an officer with impunity have his hands in his pockets with his knee on the neck of a man for eight minutes and 46 seconds? Why? Why? If everything's okay, then why why does that stuff happen? Mm. Why? You know, and rather than look away, look closer and use that discernment, use that critical thinking. And it may bring up some things. Right. And, you know, um, I know that this is man talks. And so I'll be very explicit. You know, us as men don't like to talk about feels all the time. Right. Something makes us feel hurt, like, oh, well, I'm OK. You're, you know, it's OK to not be OK. Right. Mm-hmm. It's OK to be uncomfortable. And we've got to writ large, especially men, I would say, need to be more comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's where the healing happens, right? That, that's where the truth of like being so calcified in your opinion to be unable to see the pain of another human being, that's no bueno, mm-hmm. right? So that's what I would say to that. That seems to be like at the epicenter of a lot of this is almost the the perspective of like, well, if you can't see my pain, I'm not going to bother to see yours. Exactly. You know, right. like that's not like fuck fuck your pain because mine's more important. You know, mm-hmm. and and not that dramatic or that harsh, but right? Close, but man. sometimes pretty pretty damn yeah, close. And sure. so, you know, it's it's almost like we've we've taken this so far where people who or people say get over it. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. For real? Get over 400 years of being like subjugated and tortured and hung from trees and stuff. Get over that. Yeah. It's not possible. Yeah. And so, well, I mean, let's, can we, can we go into the Black Lives Matter movement? Is that? Yeah, go for can it. Can we go into that space? So yeah. I'm curious because I think, you know, in the, in, in the days of Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X, there, there were very clear messages 
And I think yeah. what what's happening now is that there isn't sort of like a unified message in, in some of the communities in the Black Lives Matter movement. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's so there there's different there's differencing of opinions, right? Like defund the cops means different things for different people. Right. And I'm curious about your perspective, like being in 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 that realm, in that community. Right. Can you give some context to what you feel BLM is is like really focused in on? in where some of the discrepancies are and and like where you see that all going. Cause I think for a lot of people, you know, Black Lives Matters has become a symbol of something, you know, of change, of progress, right. of hope, of of unification, of equality. But on the other hand, it, it's also become a symbol for for other things, right? For for things that are very different from that. So I'm curious to get your perspective of like how have you seen Black Lives Matter really propagate and th- and flourish and and where are you maybe a little concerned about where the movement's going or if at all yeah the one thing i would say is that um the phrase has been so demonized by some people i just want people i want to urge people to consider what it means so when people say black lives matter that is not to the detriment of anybody else it is simply an articulation that in our society which has for hundreds of years sought to demonize or destroy Black, brown, Latinx folks, we cannot move forward until we assert, affirm philosophically, spiritually, and legislatively that Black Lives Matter. From the founding of the country, Black men were considered three-fifths of a person. Does that matter? At 60%, you know what I mean? Like, And that was specifically so the ruling class could have more representation in the Senate, right? So that's the history of the country. You don't have to agree with me. Read your history books, right? So that's wisdom for you. So if over the, if the if the founding of the country, black men were only three fifths of a person with no voting rights, only rights as it pertained to the master class, has that been fully achieved? Do we have full equality? So just look at the numbers. The answer is no, right? How many people are incarcerated on petty drug offenses who are black and brown? When if we had a more like rehabilitative um, orientation as opposed to a punitive orientation, we wouldn't have like this the prison industrial complex, which mo- mostly exists for in the past for free labor, right? So the American economic system was based and predicated on slavery, right? And when the Civil War happened, there was still a class who needed labor, so they sought to create structures to create that that pool of labor. So that, that that's just historical. And with respect to um, the movement, its strength at the moment is its decentralization, right? So it can be in different communities and talk about and amplify different communities' um, grievances. Because not every, you know, there are some cities and some states and some municipalities that have more progressive racial um, aims than others, right? So its decentralization can be of benefit. But at the same time, to your point, the fact that it is not centralized can lead to difficulty with respect to advocating for long-term policy change, right? So I think that the benefit, and we've seen it in the sports leagues, right? So, you know, I'm a huge basketball fan, like watching the playoffs, like Black Lives Matter is on like the floor for the NBA finals. I love that. Because it 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 it, it, re- it reinforce like you can't escape it, you know. Like in, in the NFL is doing their bit, you know. And racism is at the um in the in the in the end zone. We need to start having these things transition into the cultural conversation, which I think is the benefit. How that translates into legislation, I don't know yet, and I don't really know if that's necessarily for Black Lives Matter to effectuate. I mean, I think that it's best at the moment in spreading awareness being able to amplify local concerns. And then it's the job of people like me um, and others to amplify those concerns in the power structure, right? Mm -hmm. So we still have to work that out. Um, But I do think that because it has caught on, because it has like pervaded like sports culture, who, because are you kidding me? The NFL who like ridiculed Colin Kaepernick, basically calling him whatever, for Roger Goodell to be like, we're wrong. I still can't believe that took place, (laughs) right? So like Black Lives Matter did something. If the richest sports league outside of the Premier League decided to like completely change its stance, Black Lives Matter did something right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's and and NASCAR as well. That one was, I was like, NASCAR? I don't know. Yeah. I I don't really know. (laughs) I was like, what's 
what like, happened there? I was like, okay, that all right. just happened. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. And so, you know, I, right. think, I think there is some progress and, and it, it is interesting because there is this sort of not moral or ethical stalemate, but there seems to be this stalemate in America of people who are like, well, of course, Black Lives Matter. And so there's a huge portion of people that are that are in that space. And then there's another group of people that are like, well, you know, there's there's the all lives matters. And it's like, well, of course, right. all lives do matter. But but there needs to be a period of time. What you're saying is there needs to be a period of time where collectively there's just an understanding of like an acknowledgement of right, right black lives matter you know like we have to get to this place so once that like let's just theoretically follow that path so once that yeah. comes to fruition right let's just say that yeah. there was a widespread adoption where people are like yes of course black mm-hmm. lives matter what happens after that like what legislation what conversations like as that as that progresses like where's where's the hope that that starts to move and what does that look like from a societal standpoint what changes are hoped to be brought into existence yeah so the legacy of oppression has been like substandard housing un- unequal healthcare outcomes unequal educational outcomes like i'm pretty much the black unicorn i went to yale university right you know what i mean and i have a europe a, a master's degree from a european institution like that's not common among anyone can i can i call the podcast episode the black unicorn <laughs> yeah <laughs> go for it people right. be like what the hell <laughs> right well look it, people, it, it'll get you some looks be like huh yeah exactly right go for it i'm cool with no, that no, 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 no. um but equal educational outcomes, right? You know, why are schools that have black and brown kids like um, underfunded, mm-hmm. no textbooks, those sorts of things. So real basic stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, equal access to healthcare, equal wages, though, and equal access to opportunity. You know, everyone talks about the American dream being access to own a home and those sorts of things. You know, most Americans don't know that in the 70s, there was this thing called redlining, where like if you were a black or brown family and you wanted to move into a neighborhood, it was illegal for them to give you a loan. Yeah. Or not illegal, pardon me. Like it wasn't even it was illegal. Their behavior was illegal, but they were like, yo, nah, here, no, nah, you can't live here. Yeah. Doesn't matter if you have the money. Doesn't matter, you know, because of the color of your so we don't even know that. So there's an undoing of and you know, one of the things that is interesting is there's still hundreds of racial laws that are on the books from pre nineteen sixty five. You know what I mean? So, you know, there's still it may be pedantic to some extent, but it may be worth some municipalities like purging their books of like pre-segregationist laws, you know, just from an energetic perspective, right? Can we just start over clean? Like, yo, so these rules, no more and start over Mm -hmm. the converse. I mean, because I believe in that. I believe in karma. I believe in like, not even the energy of those laws still exists because people were prosecuted under those laws, right? So like we need, we need some sort of purging to your point in order to be able to start anew. Mm. Yeah, really well said. Well, I know that we're we're running out of time here. Yep. We have to wrap up, but this has been. I love this conversation, you know, and I think I think this conversation needs to be had more. And I think it, we need to have this conversation in a way that is conducive of hearing one another. You know, as you were saying, bringing bringing peace back into politics yep. in some capacity because it's it's certainly lacking. You know, <laughs> peace is sort of dead in politics right now, especially in America. And so we're working on it for. For everyone that's out there listening, what would you say to them in terms of how we go about doing that? What is what does it look like? What can people do? How do they infuse <clears throat> this idea of mindfulness into politics, or the idea of of being centered and grounded back in into politics in a in a time when, I mean, people just lose their shit so <laughs> quickly, <laughs> right? Well, I appreciate the question. And again, thank you for the opportunity to be with you and just, just share share time together. Um, I think that these sorts of conversations, small or large, are the key towards like getting us to where we want to go. So why is peace important? Number one, like stress kills, right? Mm. It kills conversations, it kills you by it kills your biochemistry. Um, you know, that's scientifically proven. That's not hippie speak. Like anyone who meditates, you know, like you know that, right? So like it's important because in order, you know, and, and, how, and how can it be implemented? And I can, I, can, I can offer this from my lived experience again. So when I started like meditating regularly, 
And I noticed that before, like I would be in a situation that in the past would make me be like, rah, you know, like when I noticed that that pause began to expand and that my reaction wasn't who I really am, like in my nature is peaceful. We all have that. We just got to like surface, go through the muck and find that. But when I started reacting to situations from this place, Connor, that's when things started to change, right? When I was reactive, like, I can't believe this. You're crazy. Ah, like when I started like, like that just like spun out of control. But when I, when I would be in a really chaotic situation and just come in and be super grounded, super peaceful, things started to shift. Why? I think there's a level of gravitas that goes along with that. And I think that it gets us in touch with our commonality, right? And we've got to start finding and cultivating and nurturing and growing what we have in common. And that can only come from like a peaceful place. That can only come from a grounded place. That can only come from a healthy place, healthy in terms of mind, body, and spirit connection, because we're also able to see who we are as a collective and less so as an individual. So that's that's what I would say to that. Yeah, well, well said. And, you know, I, I think I would largely agree that we are unable to make any kind of progress when we can't see each other as human beings. Right. You know, that when, if we can't meet on that level playing field, it's going to be very challenging to have any kind of discourse or dialogue. And that's, that's where we find ourselves, right? Is that Absolutely. there's perspectives that are being, you know, overweighed above others and people are, being lost in the mix, you know, like real human beings are being lost in the mix. And I think that's the, that's the unfortunate part. So listen, man, I want to respect your time. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been, um, this has been great conversation. going to have to have you back on at some point if you're up for it. Yeah, totally. Up for and, my uh, I feel like I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to have, uh, you know, other, other conversations in this realm now that I've opened the door. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, man. So thank you so much. If people want to learn more about you and what you're up to, where can they find you just lastly? Yeah. So my Instagram is oreggieglobal, O-R-E-G-G-I-E-G-L-O-B-A-L, right? So that's pretty much like the black unicorn piece that uh, Connor and I were talking about. And for those of you who are interested in like my yoga and, and meditation stuff, um, that's activepeaceyoga.com. And we didn't talk, talk about this, but I'll end by saying the following, like when we view our health as sacrosanct, when we view our mental well-being as sacrosanct, that uh, sacrosanct is like sacred, holy. Um, that's the biggest gift that we've been given. When we start to cherish that, we begin to see the value in others when we recognize that value in ourselves. And when we offer love and connection from that place of abundance, that's the key to my activism. Like I have taken care of myself and I see value in other people because I started to value myself. So that, that's what I would offer. So activepeaceyoga.com or oregiglobal on Instagram. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Indeed. For everyone that's out there, uh, definitely man it forward. Share this episode with somebody that you know would enjoy the conversation. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Thank you.